welcome to the Wilder Outdoors podcast, where you'll get the inspiration and information you need to have great outdoor adventures with your family. I'm Rob, your host. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. Today, I chat with Christy and Steve Oswald, and Christy and Steve are homesteaders. I shouldn't say they're homesteaders. They they have a homestead, and they raise their kids there. And I don't know if this is your story, but I have been wanting to get more land and be more self-sufficient and be more connected to the food uh, that we eat and just get a little bit of space for a long time. And it always seems like something that's just a little bit beyond my reach. But after talking with Christy and Steve, you see that that it's very possible. Um, And so I thought it would be a really great conversation to have to sit down with them to hear their story about how they started homesteading, some of the challenges they've faced, but most importantly, the benefits that they and their kids have received from making that choice. And so it's a great conversation. They share a lot of really wild stories. Um, really beautiful stories. It's definitely a great conversation that you won't want to miss. Now, before we start, if you could do me a favor and subscribe to this podcast, and if you like it, please leave it a good review. It helps raise the podcast in the rankings and helps get the word out. So if you could do that, be a huge help to me. And with that, let's start today's episode. Hi, everyone. Today I have with me Christy and Steve Oswald. And Christy and Steve uh, work on something called the Loftcast 2.0, which is a great podcast for homeschooling families. But more importantly for our conversation today, they are a homesteading family. And I thought it would be a fantastic conversation as I know a lot of folks who love the outdoors are also sort of toying with the idea of starting a homestead, uh, myself included, and uh, thought that would be a great resource uh, for us to, to pick their brains a little bit. So thank you for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Yeah. So Christy and Steve, I know you you know a little bit, but for folks who don't know you, tell us about yourselves. Well, um, Christy and I have known each other. Well, I'll stop. We've been married for 28 years, but we've known each other for a lot longer than that. We met in high school, never dated. She went off to college. I went off to college. We ended up back in our hometown at the same time and met each other and decided that maybe that was something we wanted to pursue. And (laughs) seven months later, we were married. So, um, yeah, we've known each other a very long time, uh, but it's just been great. We started out as friends, and it just went better from there. Well, that was a nice way to put it. <laughs> so, yeah, and we um, we started off raising our kids living in uh, Green Bay, Wisconsin, and in town, and, you know, experimenting with gardening and things and whatnot. And oh, probably within the first few years of marriage, went, you know, we really want to move out of town. We really don't want to be in town. Um, we wanted to be able to grow more of our food. We wanted to be able to play around with all sorts of different things. And I'm kind of a horse nut, so that was going to be a thing. And it took us three years of looking to find a place that, number one, we could afford because we needed, you know, budgetary. We needed to be good stewards. Um, and, and that would meet our needs. We kind of had some things that we were particular with. Given the ages of our kids at the time, we wanted something set back from the road, not on a main highway or even a busy county highway. You know, some of those things that are practical. Um, And Steve especially had a lot of kind of renovation experience, especially with older homes, which really helped us (laughs) because we, uh, we'd been foster parents for a little while. And our last little one that we've had from birth went home, which is the goal. Um, 
but it was really hard. And we had stopped looking as we were preparing for her to go home, just to keep everything kind of as, as even keel as we could. And um, Steve called me from work one day and said, um, I know we aren't looking, but I need you to take a look at what I just emailed you. And he had found our farm. Um, we're east of Green Bay. We're about 30 minutes out of town, not really by much of anything. The nearest, even small town is, you know, a good 15 minutes. Um, we're right five miles from Lake Michigan, but we got the nine acres we wanted we have a house that was built sometime in the 1880s uh, that needed a fair amount of work, but all the strong bones were good. You know, the roof, the siding, the the mechanicals, all those things were strong. It was more cosmetic that needed as well as we needed to run plumbing for a you know, washer and dryer and those kinds of things. So, but it was within our budget and with selling our house in town, it gave us the resources to do some of those changes that we needed to have immediately. So it was, it was a whole lot of really good things um, that brought it about, but it took three years to find what we wanted and, and what fit our criteria. We've been here on the farm 17 years. Yep. And um, it's been a continual work in progress. It had been abandoned um, for a while. The owner had passed away and his kids didn't want the property and lived far away. So it had been basically, you know, empty for a year and a half. Uh, so we kind of took what ended up almost being raw land at that point and building what we wanted. So it's kind of, uh, it, it's been an ongoing adventure and, uh, and it continues to be. Oh yeah. Every, every year things get better, but there's always another project that we would love to get into. <laughs> well, so how old were your kids when you moved? Oh boy. Um, five, eight. And 11. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, I ate an 11. Okay. So they, they were a little bit older. What, what was that transition like for them? Well, it wasn't as bad as a lot of people would think because we'd been homeschooling the kids the whole time. So it's not like we were taking them from all their school friends. Um, and we kept them involved in the activities they were in already, even being, you know, 30 minutes from green Bay. Think about the town you live in. It'll take you 30 minutes from get to get or 20 minutes to get from one side of town to the other, unless you're in a really small town. So the transition was not real bad for them. Um, nothing really changed except their physical location. It's not like they stopped seeing people they were seeing regularly anyway. Yeah, we were we were because we were heavily involved with our church as well as. By that point, the kids were in theater and yeah. music lessons and things. So we were back and forth in town and and with their friends a fair amount. We just knew, okay, we're adding to our drive time, and this is part of part of the deal. It yeah. was amazing being able to get them outside um, in a more natural setting on a continual basis, and and then as we as we started building things, you know, we ended up. Within that first year, we were putting up pasture fencing and we were securing a building to have as a run-in shelter for what ended up to be ponies. Um, and the kids were, you know, came right along and did things with us and um, were an integral, integral part of everything we did. So it was neat to get a lot of hands-on and real direct activity. Well, I, I think 
like that's what I wanted to ask you about because I think about it for us and and most of the people I know and we have a lot of no's in our head, right? Mm-hmm. We have a lot of reasons why we shouldn't do that. I know so many people that would love to do what you guys did. Um, again, like I would love to do that right now, but we always think, oh my gosh, we'd pull the kids out of their their friend community, right? right. It, for us right now, that's through a church, mm-hmm. that's through a co-op, um, you know, and gosh, that seems impossible. But, you know, having spoken with you a little bit, I know that there were a lot of benefits. There were a lot of reasons to say yes to, and I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about those. Like what were the good things that came out of this move for your kids? Well, it, in one aspect, even though they continued with music lessons and all those other things, um, it also, because it was more of a distance, we planned our trips. So our trips to town, we tended to combine things. So it would be a day of their activities. And so in one aspect, we ended up having a lot more home time and, and kind of good time together without being pulled in a lot of directions. And that was really, that was really huge. Um, because we did have to be have to be practical about okay what do we need to do well if we're gonna we're not just gonna run to the grocery store every day or we're not gonna all those things um we ended up being a lot more intentional about that um and we really encouraged the kids to have friends out and and do things so they stayed connected with those friends and then they made friends out here particularly as they started 4-h and got to know because you know kids aren't close by our nearest neighbor is a half mile away (laughs) um but it, it was it was such a good thing for them. It it kind of I felt like it really brought brought a level of peace and rhythm to our lives in many ways. Okay, t- tell me more about that. When you say peace and rhythm, what do you mean? Well, we started off with, um, you know, the, they start the kids started in 4-H and they started with chickens. Well, we started learning about how the seasons affect our animals and looking ahead and planning ahead. Okay. Winter's going to come. What do we need? What do they need? Um, and so our life started to follow the seasons, um, quite a bit with what our activities were and what we chose to do. And there was a lot of mindfulness about preparing for what's, what's going to happen next. Um, we learned, we learned real quickly <laughs> um, to watch the weather report. We're five miles from Lake Michigan, so we get some pretty incredible lake effect snow at times that they won't have a few miles away. And so we really learned to be mindful and sort of be prepared for what might happen. If storms are coming in, you need to be, you know, know that you have enough in the pantry for a few days. You need to have plans for digging yourself out, getting the vehicles free. Um, you know, we had, I was thinking of, and you're going to help have me fill in. Remember yeah. when we had that snowstorm and then the power went out? Oh yeah. That was, it was a full blown blizzard. It started, you know, in one morning. And by uh, that evening there was, there were drifts out in the driveway that were six feet high. And um, at that point, the power was not as reliable as it is today. And the power went out. Okay, so now the electricity is out, but our farmhouse is really well built, and fortunately, we use uh, propane for um, cooking and 
Obviously heating our home, but the furnace didn't run. But we were able to light the stove to melt snow because we're on a well. And this, all these things go to, you know, making sure the kids keep things in mind. So we, we didn't have well water, but there was plenty of snow outside and we could melt snow on the stove. And it really wasn't as rustic as it no. sounds. It really wasn't. But the other, the, the flip point of that was the county had issued that the roads were impassable. They were saying that really don't drive. And so we were very carefully going, okay, the power is out here. Do we need to look at taking the kids into town, you know, to someone's house where we, you know, so we didn't know what was, when power was coming back. Um, so we got, we got creative and, yeah. the, you know, we'd read storybooks, the little house books and all those things as part of homeschooling. So it kind of turned into a game. I think we ended up putting a blanket over the living room mm-hmm. doorway and yeah. collect all the family in one room and everybody, candles for light. And everybody had a sleepover with sleeping bags. They thought it was awesome. <laughs> Meantime, mom and dad are going, okay, how cool does it have to get in the house before we call it and brave the roads to get into town? And fortunately, that's when the light power came back on and (laughs) and the kids were bummed because it was the sleepover was done. (laughs) But on the plus side, they could watch TV again. So, but that was, you know, that we haven't had those kinds of extremes very often, but that was the one where it really kind of brought home that this was something. You know, this is something we need to be aware of. Um, it's a little different when you live in town. I was going to say, like, what what kinds of adaptations have you had to make to your life living outside of town? It's really just being intentional. Um, you know, like Christy said, you're not going to just run down to the grocery store to grab, um, you know, a, a loaf of bread or or that one thing that that you forgot. You've got to plan ahead. So it's it's been really good in training me at just planning ahead, you know, what, what seems like, Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, I always plan ahead. No, you don't, you got to think I, you know, for the next, whatever, however many, you know, three, four, seven days of meal planning, or at least possible meals, make sure you've got what you need. It's not that it's impossible to, but you know, to run into town, run to the store and come back, it's an hour and a quarter. So in the, in the last couple of years, we both now work remotely. So we're here. Yeah. (laughs) And that's the other thing. Yeah. Since 2020, we're, you know, all day, every day I work from home. So, so, so we don't have a regular commute to town. So how, how did you make your work situations work? Well, prior to, um, COVID I, I didn't, I worked, Remotely, I I had a regular, you know, I went to the office. It was either, well, various jobs, but not here at the farm. So it was actually, I hate to say this, um, but it, you know, the whole transitioning to work from home was a great, a great change for me Um, to be able to not have that drive, you know, just literally to save the, the 30, 45 minute, one hour commute to work. Um, mm-hmm. just makes it more possible to, to get more things done, uh, honestly, at the farm or to have the time. Well, in your field, Steve's by trade a software developer. And so we've watched his field now heavily move to remote work. And so, you know, those trends are interesting. Um, we ended up, um, because of those employment trends, 
we definitely, you know, had to think about upgrading our internet because rural, it had been a real problem for a mm -hmm. long time. Thankfully, technology has improved. So that has helped and made that possible. Um, you know, for when the kids were growing up, we juggled our work schedules. So I was generally working when he was home. Um, and I was able to do that at the job I had. So we could make that work. So we really had somebody, one of us with the kids all the time and just got creative. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's something that I, I always wonder about. I mean, my, my work can be done remotely and usually is. Um, but I, like I have friends who, who've made the, the shift to moving to rural communities and, um, it's, it's been, it's been a little bit different. I have one friend who all the boys, all the older boys in his family and he work at the local auto shop. Okay. And you know, that, that wasn't the career he, he went into town with, <laughs> yeah. um, but it was, it was the one he could do. And it was the one that, uh, you know, that was available. Yeah. So, the one that was available. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we'll pivot a little bit, but you have mentioned multiple times 4 H mm -hmm. and, so I, I grew up in, in South Florida, uh, in almost, it wasn't quite rural where I grew up, but it was, we had a lot of horses. Oh, okay. I grew up right on the edge of the Everglades. Um, and I just say that as context, mm -hmm. like I, I didn't grow up in a community that had 4-H, but we had a lot of animals. Mm -hmm. And so I know a, a little bit about 4-H. I know you've shared with me that it was transformative for your kids. So, you know, tell folks a little bit about what 4-H is. And then if you could, some of the stories with your kids. Well, 4-H is pretty much an agricultural kind of club, but it's not just ag. Um, it's a lot of, of arts and uh, home economics. and It just covers a wide variety of things kids would be interested in and things they can learn from. Um, and that you'll find 4-H in the cities. You'll find 4-H out in the country. It doesn't have to only be farm animals. There's clubs everywhere. Um and I'm trying to remember the ages because you can start as a clover bud. And I think in second grade is, a, and I may be wrong on that because it's been a while, but about that age, kids transition fully out of clover buds into 4-H. And it's a group that meets, um, it, each club is different. Our group, our club met um, at the town hall a couple miles away um, at monthly and we were working on projects. The kids were learning. They used, what was that? Robert's rules. Of, Robert's rules of order. Yeah. They used that to run their meetings and, you know, there were leaders, adult leaders, but there were kids that were the president, vice president, the finance, the treasurer, um, someone was the secretary um, and they were all voted in, in those positions. So there were all these cooperative things that they worked to do. And, um, Again, each club runs a little differently is what they do, but generally there'll be an activity, there'll be a learning thing, there'll be lots of times there's field trips. Um, they're organized mostly by county by county. And at least here, um, we're in Kiwani County in Wisconsin, and the county fair is in the summertime, and that is where the 4-H kids show their projects. And it can be, you know, there was baking and Legos and gardening, gardening and ceramics and home, uh, home crafts and on and on and on. It's an extraordinarily long list, including also the agricultural things. Um, and it was neat because we had not come for both of us. 
our parents were children on the farm and left the farm as children. Um, so when we when we bought the farm, our parents were a little mystified. Like, why would we go back? <laughs> um, but it was what we wanted. But we didn't have a whole lot of know-how about livestock. I mean, I had I had ridden horses extensively as a kid, but that was about I didn't own any. We didn't really care for them. We had pets, but that's a different thing. Mm -hmm. So um, as the kids joined 4-H, well, there was Chicken Project and there was goat project and there was rabbits, so, and, rabbits and every animal you can think of. Um, and in those projects, there are guidebooks and things that they're going to learn and get ready for. Well, at fair, they actually show their animals. Um, and it was, it was our first experience and we didn't have a lot of experience with what this was going to look like. And um, our first fair and the kids were really excited. It, and it was great. The, the other parents, everybody bands together. It was, it was a great experience. But um, we had gotten into dairy goats, basically because we wanted to provide our own milk. Again, not having heavy livestock experience and knowing from a little bit of research that a cow is going to produce an enormous amount of milk, more than our little family would probably consume. Um, and I kind of figured if a cow kicked me, that's really going to hurt. If a dairy goat kicked me, eh, you know, that's, that's probably can brush that off and keep going. And so we, we found a breeder um, and so, who kind of took us under their wing and taught us the basics and got us started with our first goats. And our son, who was the eldest, was very interested. This was kind of his thing. And we went to the fair that first year and they're, they had talked about, well, you're going to walk your goat around the ring and they're going to be looking for different things. And he'd done the studying to know what was being looked at for his goat. And, and he handled her. That was our philosophy, which is the 4-H philosophy is, well, this is the child's project. They need to be working with that animal all the time. It isn't mom and dad take care of the animal, then fair week, they, the kid does it. That's not how that works. Or it's not how it should work. <laughs> um, and sure enough, you know, our son goes into the ring to show and he was in a junior level or something and and they walked around and he did his thing and, and he got his first ribbon and then they called him back and we were like oh okay and he went back in with another group of kids same older thing. kids older kids and was, younger kids and younger yeah. it was more a different outside his age group yeah it was a, it wasn't just the age group and we were like oh okay i i don't really know and then some of the kids went out and he stayed in the ring with a few other kids and then they did some more things and the judges looking at the goats and they're handling them and they're switching off goats and showing their animal husbandry skills and things. And, you know, you can see the kids having conversations with the judge one-on-one -on -one and this and that. And it got down to two of them <laughs> and he's still in the ring. I have no idea what's going on. You know, at this point, we, we really didn't know. And our 4-H leader came up and she's like, wow, he's still in there. And I'm like, yeah, what's with that? And she goes, He's in the championship round. And I went, really? <laughs> she, she laughed. She's like, really? But he did. He um, His first time out, he got a reserve championship under a girl who'd been showing goats for years. She was probably five or six years his senior. Um, but it was the point of they're, they're handling their animals and showing how they know how to treat their animals and care for them and what they're looking at. 
um, skill wise. And so it turned out to be just a great event. Yeah. Um, and yeah, the, the thing for the kids, you know, it's, it's the county fair. So what they, one of the big motivators for them is they want to go to the fair. They get to be there the whole week. And then the public part of the fair opens Thursday night when there's the rides in the midway and, and all of that. Well, if they have a project in fair, they get to go to the fair for free. So with our perspective on it, these are your animals. It's your project. You're responsible for making sure you are ready. You know, the animals are clean. They're cared for. They're ready. They've done the work with the animals. So um, it just, it taught them a ton of responsibility. And, and it wasn't like we weren't there. We were no, there we, every we step of the way. way. But yeah, <laughs> we weren't going to make sure that the chickens were washed that morning. The kids had to get everything ready and then we'd help them. Yeah. And you do wash chickens. <laughs> That's a interesting process, <laughs> but we. But tell us about it now. Now that you brought it up, well, okay. So there's two different kinds of soap. You can just use regular. I mean, we use dish soap for, yeah. for the. But if you've got a white chicken, there's a different soap because you want those chickens to be bright white. So it's called bluing, oddly. But so you you have a five gallon bucket and you. Dunk the chicken in the soapy water, keeping their head up because you can't get water in their ears or they'll drown. And then you have some clear water to rinse them in. And then you truly, uh, the, the expression mad as a wet hen is there for a reason. <laughs> and then you put the chicken in a nice clean cage and they dry off and they resent you for a long time. But you take them to fair. And... Yeah, but it would be, it would come to, there'd be a row of five gallon pails. Yeah. And we'd make sure that it was warm enough, you know, because... It, with well water, it comes out of the ground pretty cold. So we let everything warm up. But now, you know, then you're you're kind of swishing chickens in buckets. It was when they told us about that, we went, "What? Are you, I thought somebody was pulling my leg." Yeah. Um, but yeah, you you learn to wash your chickens, and and then try and keep them clean. And mm -hmm. yeah, you know, it it was a thing. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> wow. So, how many animals do you guys have now? Oh, well, we have five horses, uh, three dogs. 45 chickens. Yeah, 45 chickens. Um, in barn cats, we have inside cats. So Yeah, when, when the kids were growing up, because our theory and, and the way we wanted to parent our kids and, and really get them engaged in learning was if you're showing interest in something and you're willing to do the work, we're going to try and, and really help you get there. And so... Um, our kids were all animal lovers. So at, at one point or another, we had pretty much every kind of animal on the property, except we never had a cow. Right. We didn't have pigs until the kids were grown and gone. And we never had alpaca. But I think other than that, we pretty much had everything at one point or another. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> so. so for those of us who don't know, what what is everything? Oh, so we had the dairy goats. Um, we had a couple sheep, lots of chickens. We had turkeys briefly. We had ducks. Ducks. Uh, the horses, of course, we've had. Donkey. Rabbits. We had a donkey. Mule. So, yeah, it's been, yeah, we've had quite a few things through. Yeah. We had, we had one child who was really, really interested in rabbits, and she got really interested in the genetics of rabbits and there's a breed called a harlequin that has a very specific um color pattern. color pattern and so she was researching what she was looking for and was actively breeding to get that 
patterning. And now she was in high school at this point. But there was a point where there were probably 60 rabbits in we call it the, the rabbitry, the, the rabbitry and the rabbit Taj Mahal. <laughs> oh my gosh. What did you do with them all? Um, she showed a good share of them. The ones that she felt like weren't the quality she sh- sold off um, to other kids. We never, we never ate no. rabbits. That no, wasn't, that was not going to be okay. okay. Um, <clears throat> she never raised meat rabbits. Either. No, on purpose. Cause she just couldn't, she couldn't, it, no, it wasn't going to happen. Um, we did we did have meat, chickens, and had the turkeys we raised, we butchered. Um, so I'm 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 a huge fan of wild foods, and and not the these are wild, right? Mm-hmm. You're cultivating them, but you know I I was speaking with someone recently, and I was sharing with them that we we hold wild foods dinners, okay, right? and yep. and. And it's sort of our way of connecting with the process of, of, you know, harvesting, creating, earning, whatever it was, whatever our ancestors did to get food, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're working for it now. Mm-hmm. We're not outsourcing it as much as I think most of modern society does. Right. And one of the key differences for us is that when we have these parties, every dish has a story and a place attached to it. And And I have to imagine that with homesteading, you also have that with a lot of things. And so I'm, I'm sort of curious, like what, what is the experience like with, I mean, maybe food is one thing, but in what ways do the, the things that people take for granted in the cities take on a new meaning when you move on to a homestead? You understand the effort that goes into that bite of food on your plate. Um, you know, chickens are, they're, they're fairly easy to keep, but still, you know, we have to make sure that, you know, their chicken coop, it's, this is upper Midwest. It, I mean, it's not right now, but it gets cold. We had that cold snap where it was single digits and we have to make sure the birds are okay. They need fresh water every day. They need their, to make sure they have food there and, you know, their coop needs to be weather tight. Um, and so it's funny when we go out and collect eggs every day, I personally thank the ladies because no. they work hard. Um, but yeah, even we don't butcher much anymore. Uh, it's rare actually that we butcher any of our birds, but when we did, you, you know, you respect that, you know, this animal, you know, they, they live, they experience, they, you know, you make sure that you respect their, their life and you make sure that exit for them is sudden and unexpected. They don't even know what happened. And that, yeah, that was always, mm-hmm. you know, we want to give them the best life they can and then it's done, right. you know, to be absolutely humane, um, was really, really important to us. Um, and we've had, we've had animals where we've had an animal become injured or ill and, and even some of our aged animals. And, you know, we've had numerous, very frank conversations with our vets who probably are a little relieved because when they come in. And they're looking at our, our very, I'm thinking of our very elderly horse that we mm-hmm. lost this year. Um, you know, she had lived a great life, had been really, really healthy, and then she's not. And and our bottom line was, we need to be honorable to our animals, and we need our job is to make sure they don't suffer. If we can make things better, if we can make them better, we're all for that. Um, but we're going to be really respectful that we're the guardians of their lives and we're the 
guardians of their well-being. And so if it, you know, I'm, I'm, we have a gelding right now who we know has melanoma and he's elderly as well. And, and the vet has said, you know, when we found the melanoma, he said, yeah, you know, it's probably elsewhere. And I could point out on his side. I'm like, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what this is too. And here, and he's like, yeah, it'll be throughout. And it's like, okay, as long as he's comfortable, as long as he's happy, as long as he's not suffering and he's having a good life. Yes. If it gets to the point where he's not, we have to make it stop. No matter, you know, it's, it's painful. It's awful. You know, these animals are part of our lives. Um, but we wouldn't, we, we can't let them suffer. And that's the number one, their well-being has to come first. And sometimes that means hard decisions that we don't like to make. But it, it is part of the reality of the real life. Now, you, you mentioned that your kids have moved off the farm. Mm-hmm. And I'd, I'd love to hear a little bit about what they're doing right now, if you, if you don't mind. Um, well, two of them have moved farther away and are out working in the regular world, our daughters, and, and one has just bought a home and, you know, they're doing their thing. Um, our son and his family are closer and we see them a lot. He's, he's gone on and he's a machinist, um, is raising a young family. We have two grandchildren. Um, you know, he kind of initially kind of laughed and he's like, well, I kind of grew up as a farm kid and he kind of talked down about it for a while. Initially, you know, is when an 18, 19, 20 year old and he's kind of come to realize that some of that work ethic and seeing that you put in the labor for an actual result is something that he doesn't necessarily see in his peers who weren't raised on this. Um, you know, we give him a hard time and, and he teases us because he, he's gone through various phases as we all do, but watching him mature and he's 29 now, um, he's really, I think gotten more of a respect. You know, this is how he grew up. So in your mind, you don't really think that other people don't have the same experience or the same viewpoint. And now as he's parenting his kids, we're watching him kind of put some of those things into practice. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been really neat. Um, it's been neat. And I don't, you know, I certainly don't hold anything against that. He doesn't feel like he wants to be on a farm per se, but on the other hand, his fiance, they're, bo- they're both very interested in being able to live that more independent lifestyle. So we'll see what happens in the next few years. (laughs) Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And I I have to say, you know, for, for anyone listening who is not uh, in a place where there are large farming communities, when I moved to Minnesota, uh, when my wife and I moved, you know, we bought a home that like yours need a lot of work. It, it actually needed a lot of structural work. Ooh, uh, we didn't know that when we bought it. Oh, yeah. So I've, I mean, I, at one point um, we had to reframe the entire garage wall, oh, wow. uh, one side of it because it was about to collapse. Oh, um, but I learned how to do all of that stuff mm-hmm. because there would be usually, you know, older gentlemen at uh, the church that we were attending who had grown up on a farm and they had learned to do all of these things. They actually were usually sort of the, 
they always said like, man, I can't, I can't, you know, build a fence as fast as my brother can. Um, and I was never quite, you know, the strongest or the fastest. So I went off and got a degree in computer science. <laughs> and, and so there were these engineers in, you know, software engineers, actual engineers, um, like mechanical and structural yep. in, in the Twin Cities, but who all grew up on farms. And they would come and they do like a full day of work. And then they would just show up at my house. <laughs> like, I didn't even ask. Them. They would just show up and they'd be like, I'm going to work. Uh, probably until about eight o'clock at night. Is that cool? <laughs> and they'd go, yeah. you know? Uh-huh. And so um, it was, it was really inspiring. Right. Cause uh-huh. I, I didn't grow up, you know, with, with that kind of work ethic. I certainly grew up working, yeah. but um, yeah. So it's, I, I think there's just so much to be gained from that lifestyle as you guys are pointing out. Um and I, I love that your kids are all doing well. I think that's, you know, I think a, a fear of a lot of us city folks that, you know, if we move our kids out of the city, well, what's going to happen to them? You know, we, we don't know. We, we've never raised kids. And right. so hearing, hearing stories of you, you know, and, and others who've really been successful with their kids has been fantastic. And speaking of which, you homeschooled your kids and you are the hosts of a great podcast, <laughs> The Loftcast 2.0. Um, I would love it if you could talk a little bit about it. Okay. Well, um, I I have been part of the Homeschool Loft, which is out of De Pere, Wisconsin, since uh, spring of 2020. Uh, two other homeschooling moms had started it, and our kids grew up with their kids. We've known each other for decades since our kids were all small. Um, and I ended up getting involved shortly after they started, and I was kind of the secondary secondary line of membership or something. Um, And we have built the homeschool loft as a resource center for parents. We don't have a physical location uh, simply because we're trying to be good stewards. And what we do is we provide information, uh, support. We have uh, a huge list of resources and information regarding those. Um, my partner, Tina Hollenbeck, has put together the Homeschool Resource Roadmap, which has pretty much, oh my. There are tens of thousands of links to various resources, all categorized and and sorted uh, by subject matter and age group and multiple ways. So, so you can search all sorts of things to find resources you need. Um, Tina regularly meets with families who are interested in homeschooling or are looking for some more support. I provide some consulting to families, uh, given my background as a speech therapist. We do a lot of different things, just homeschooling supports. Uh, we have been, so we've been going strong in the area. And we have, we originally, with Tina and Jenny started the homeschool loft and then I joined. And um, when Jenny left us um, to pursue her own endeavor, which is wonderful, um, we had to decide how we were going to, were we going to be able to keep the podcast going and realized that um, my husband has a sound studio. So we could figure this out. Um, and, and he's really smart and he's our producer and puts together all sorts of things for us. And really on the, the Homeschool Lovecast 2.0, we get together with people from all over, from all walks of life, about a wide, diverse 
amount of things. Um, we just had an interview with a lady from Chickenlandia talking about chickens <laughs> and, and homeschooling. And she has put together an entire curriculum. Uh, we've talked to about legislative issues. Um, homeschooling preschoolers was a, a podcast we just taped that will be releasing pretty soon. So we drop a podcast twice a month now. Um, it had been once a month last year while we were getting our feet under us, and now it's twice a month. And um, it's been wonderful to be able to talk to families who are interested, who have thoughts, concerns, um, who have questions about the laws and if there's regulations and how it works from state to state and, and what kind of ways they might get some support. What There's so many local groups everywhere. When we started homeschooling our kids, we were certainly not the pioneers by any stretch. However, it was still kind of an out there thing. Um, and what we see today is there's so many wonderful supportive networks out there of people reaching out to each other to support each other in doing this. Um, so it's been just, it's been a great experience and, and it's going to continue. That's wonderful. And for anyone who'd like to hear Tina, um, they can actually check out episode um, 28 of this podcast where I interview Tina yes. about her book. Uh, and so that, that's a really great conversation as well. That actually came out today. So folks listening to this, you'll have to go back a few weeks. Um, and now, Steve, yes. you are a voice actor. I am starting and- to get into that. Absolutely. Uh, I've been acting... Uh, in community theater, uh, music theater locally for, well, about 20 years. Uh, but a friend of mine is a writer and has a series of audio dramas that I have just been cast in an upcoming episode of, or series of episodes. The, the series is called The Jake Muller Adventures. Uh, we will be recording that in late February for, I don't know what the release date is, but the first episode, Jake Muller, Unidentified, is available uh, online. So that is, uh, it's, it's been an aspiration of mine to, uh, to, to be able to do this a little more formally. So I'm very excited. Well, you definitely have the voice for it. And you have the face for stage acting, too. So, you know, hopefully we get the whole experience right? someday. someday. Um, <laughs> yeah well hey, thank you both so much this has been a really great conversation I appreciate it thank you so thank much you. it's been an honor to be with you